Welcome to the Mike Gun Watch Podcast. I am your host, Mike Veerman, and I am here with my friend and trusty producer, Max Kerman. And Max, we're recording this literally hours before you leave the country once again. Yeah, it's been so busy. I feel like we rarely see each other. I know, and to uh, the podcast fans, we apologize if they seem like they've been coming out a little slower lately. We plan to get in a better groove uh, soon, but right now the band has been traveling to the states and today i'm leaving in like 10 minutes uh to philadelphia actually i just texted mike and nick saying sorry i'm gonna be 10 minutes late <laughs> do they know it's because you're potting no, at this very moment <laughs> that is hilarious yeah i know we've been super busy i've been shooting a bunch of stuff for the amazing race you're Canada. going to winnipeg i'm going to winnipeg on <laughs> sunday nice. can't wait to shoot a whole thing and you know, I feel like we, uh, we're just ships crossing in the night these days, Max, just to pod. Has our I, relationship only boiled down to this podcast? Lately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? So we did this interview with Laura Jane Grace, uh, and we'll get to that. But we finished it, and we were there together. And uh, you were, and me too, were like on top of the world. And it just <laughs> You said, like, you know doing all the prep and all the stuff to get ready for an interview sometimes seems like a lot of work. When you have a million other things to do. You yeah, know, You're exactly. prepping to go on the road. I'm prepping to go away. Okay, it's like, okay. and, but then you do it, and it's so exciting. It's always worth it. Yeah. You get to know somebody, and you have a conversation with them, and then afterward you go, oh, this is why we do it. These conversations are so sort of interesting and enlightening, and the whole reason we started this damn thing. In the and she's place. particularly incredible as an interview. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. And we'll I, get to her in a second. We'll get to her in a second. Maxie. What have you been up to? Uh, what what's going on? So um, my schedule when I'm home is uh, I have to I try to be a good boyfriend mm-hmm. uh, and make up for lost time <laughs> with Lauren. She's very understanding of my situation of being in a dude in, dude in a band. Uh, I also try to see my family. My sister has a little kid. He's like turning one. Very cute. Very sweet. I saw on Snapchat you were on the bus with your parents. Yeah, my parents came to Hamilton, so I try to see my family, and then also. I try to party with my boys <laughs> whenever I can fit that in. And they're, if they're listening, they're going to be rolling their eyes right now. Like my roommate, Al, who I love to death. He's like, I never see that guy ever. Sure. But um, I had heard word that your brother, Greg, my roommate, and our friend, Dan, who's uh, asking for us not to use his last name anymore, <laughs> uh, had tickets for Weezer. Oh. And, this, and they were so. going to be catching, say it so, catching the 530 bus. Um and it was like about 4.45. So I quickly made some emails to see if I can get hooked up with free free tickets. Ooh. And uh, I got hooked up and I joined them on the bus. Of course, like a couple of 18-year-olds, they had bought Mickey's and uh, and <laughs> bottles of <laughs> tonic water. Uh, and we're planning to drink them on the go train, which is always very exciting. <laughs> I love doing that. It's That, will, that novelty will never get really It will never old. get old. Yeah. and by, But by the time we were like, Getting on the train, the bottles were all warm and disgusting. But you still committed. Dan, well, Dan, I didn't even want to, but Dan was like, "You better do it, man! Come on!" Yeah, Dan's <laughs> a beer, like he's a peer pressure guy. <laughs> uh, and then we got there, and our friend the nut, yeah, uh, was there, and uh, the nut hooked us up with some free drinks too. I won't say what his job is, but he has a company card. Oh, oh, and sometimes he can entertain his friends. Oh, oh, and uh, we. Got seats on the floor. Woo. So we're about 15 yards from Rivers, the oh man himself. Goodness. Now, Mike, you know how to describe this better than anybody. How would you describe your brother's affection for Rivers and like where <laughs> it began? And, and the reason why I like talking about this particular instance is I feel like everybody has something like this in their life that brings that there's a person they look up to that brings them back to a very innocent time. And now, no matter how crazy and cruel the world gets, 
you have this one thing, which is like basically like your teddy bear or something sure. that you can hold on to for in for your whole life in some cases. Uh, Weezer it, is a safe place, is what you're saying. I, it totally is. And so, just describe. It's I wish just have place. Greg on the pod to describe himself. But you, how would you describe your brother's relationship with Weezer? I've known Greg for some years now, <laughs> like since he was born. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and uh, I will say this: so the Blue Album, like everybody loves the Blue Album. It's pretty magical. When it came out, it was a huge yeah. hit because of Buddy Holly. Blah blah blah. When Pinkerton came out, I remember my brother first day goes to like the HMV or the Music World or whatever it was in Hamilton, took the Mohawk 41 Mohawk bus to Limeridge Mall and he bought this damn CD um, and he loved it from day one. And a lot of people didn't really get Pinkerton at first. Like even I was like, oh, those drums are like pretty harsh. Like it sounds like a demo. I remember thinking it doesn't sound professional. And it's funny because now I, I love Pinkerton. I think it's their masterpiece. But even I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't really, it sounds raw. And Greg was like, no, it's genius. Well, he was more like, it's genius. Cause he hadn't hit puberty yet. <laughs> How old was he? Oh, was, I don't know. 96. Was, so he was like 11 probably. Or whatever. Something like 12, that. 12. Yeah. And he was like, he loved it. Now, I don't know if he loved it cause he was like some visionary, like music fan and had great taste or just because, it and I think rivers. history has proven this. He's just a blind lover of all things Weezer because, uh, you know, eventually later on when like the green album came out and like maladroit and then some of these other like sort of like very questionable albums, <laughs> very goofy re- re- experimenting with with like pop auto tune river is just like out to lunch not out to lunch but going through phases i should say greg will defend those the same way he'll defend pinkerton yeah. which makes him lose all credibility so, pinkerton. <laughs> so you know it's almost like a, a parent that like it's like their child might be like the, the you know like picking on people at school spinning on people and then you <laughs> tell the parent and the parent's like my child would never yeah so when you're like eh, those lyrics are kind of goofy greg i don't know about rivers. Like, rivers a genius man yeah. rivers a genius. no you just don't get what he's doing bro <laughs> He's operating up here, man. You're just you're hearing it down here. It's like, okay, Greg. <laughs> well, you, but I will say this about Weezer, and actually, I've been using them that Pinkerton as a reference when it comes to just the way I think about uh, music Arkells are making. Not that I think it sounds like Pinkerton at all, but just the idea of time has a great way of like um, of making especially pieces of art evaluated differently than they are in the very moment they're created or in the year after it comes out. And uh, I think that record totally stands the test of time. So a lot of times when new bands put out new records, a lot sure. of bands are left scratching their heads. And and it takes it can take years sometimes for people to readjust their ears and go, oh, okay, I know it's expecting the Blue Album, but this is something different, but it's still made by the same people and there's s- some similar sensibilities. Um, but I'm just going to have to readjust my ears a little bit. And I, and I always try to tell myself that it's like, well, is this what our Kells fans are going to like or whatever? I was like, you know what, if you, if we trust it as a band, you know, then just trust that it might take a little bit of time, but people hopefully, if, if the art is good enough, we'll, we'll find a way to appreciate it. Sure. I think the hardest thing is the trust. Cause you, yeah. you go, well, is this just shitty or am I taking a chance? Or is this like not shitty per se, but it's like, is this so far to the left to the right? And I, th- I think it's being like, it's so hard to gauge that. And like you said, you just have to trust your instincts. Yeah. Especially as the artist creating it. A big time. That yeah. would be like the most difficult thing. I mean, when I was writing music, like I always found that really hard to negotiate because I was always, I don't think that I would allow myself the room to fail. I was so sort of scared of like being like, oh no, this is just too goofy. You know, where it ends up becoming crippling. Like we need to deliver exactly what people think we ought to be delivering. Though. Or it's like, are these lyrics cool? Or are they, are they like real enough? And then it's like, you get so in your goddamn head. Yeah. You're not just letting things flow and creating. Yeah. 
No, I totally agree. And, 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 you know, a lot of these great songwriters, they just produce a lot of stuff. Like Beck has apparently albums and albums. Be prolific. Never, totally. Be prolific. Just keep doing it. And then you let somebody else sort of figure out what's going to be put out there. But just do it, do it, do it. Yeah, you got to take swings, man. You swing yeah. at 10 pitches, you'll hit one. Exactly. You know, it's like Dan's theory with the ladies. <laughs> we don't say his last name anymore for that reason. <laughs> never again. Yeah, I mean, and you guys enjoyed the, the evening? Yeah, it was awesome. Great, great night. Sounds like the kind of night that uh, happens <laughs> only in dreams. <laughs> uh, so another th- thing that was awesome uh, was, you know, I grew up in downtown Toronto, but I had never been to a pride parade. Uh, right. And uh, our manager, Ashley, shout out to Ash, who listens to the pod. What up? Who's a killer manager, killer person. She lives on Young Street, like Young and uh, Gerard, basically. And she's had a pride party every year for the last seven years or however long she's lived in the place. So a bunch of her friends that I know are invited over. It's We all hang out on the roof. They, she has this, like awesome rooftop like hang. And uh, it was a pretty special pride because, I mean, a few things happened, but the, the prime minister was there. Justin Trudeau. And I was, and Trudeau stopped. Actually, he stopped. Uh, at the rooftop party? At the rooftop. He came and had some. I heard Max Kells here. <laughs> Get me a Miller Lite. Let's do this. <laughs> a Miller Lite. Uh, but um, it was so cool to see the prime minister of our country just, first of all, the dude looks like a model. It's insane. It's insane. He's so easy on the eyes. She's just drawn to him. Yeah. And and then he's wearing this sort of like salmon pink shirt. He's waving. People are squirting him with water. He doesn't care. Is How long do you think he, he thought about what shirt he was going to wear? Uh, he probably just has those instincts, man. He's like, this is what works. Right. Uh, do you think someone dresses him? I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. He's got a lot of decisions to make. When I saw, <laughs> It's true. When I saw the Instagrams of him walking in the parade and just a lot of people sort of being like, this is why I'm proud to be from Canada. You know, this is this is fantastic, like, that our prime minister is walking in the pride parade. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, it's kind of crazy to me that it's taken this long, you know? Because I feel like in the last decade, we fast-tracked yeah. a lot of, you know, public perception on, like, LGBTQ issues. But then, you know, at the same time... But at the same time, we had uh, Prime Minister Harper in charge for the last eight years. Yeah. So I've been saying this. The bar was set pretty low, knowing yeah. that the culture yeah. is fast-tracked this quickly... And that, like, but there's still so many issues. That's there, the thing. There, there it's still, still not. Issues. It's not there. It's yet, not there you know? yet. But the bar has been set pretty low to to become the coolest prime minister ever. If you have a little bit of charisma and you're like an open minded liberal person, yeah. If you're mildly socially liberal, yeah. everyone will be like, "You're the best. You're like <laughs> yeah. us." It's like this guy's incredible. The first prime minister ever. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and I mean, and then the Canadians are like extra lucky that this guy just happens to actually be of that ilk of like very progressive young, really seems to have, like, the values of progressivism. Who do you think's harumphing over a photo like that? Like, who do you see opening the paper the next day and seeing him marching in pride and going, that's not my Canada? Who does that? Because there's got to be a section of people that do that. Is it older people? Is it our grandparents? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, I think it's mostly older older people who who feel like they're, you know, this has been brought up a million times, but who feel like their way of life is being taken away from them when it's really not at all. Sure. Well, I mean, here's the other thing. It's like you tend to kind of obviously, gra- as you get older, gravitate towards people that are like-minded. It's like, have you ever been at a party and had a conversation with someone that's like socially conservative? It's like, I don't know who those people are, but yeah, they're, they're, socially, they're out there. Economically conservative sometimes. Totally. I know a lot of those people yeah. and I, we can have that conversation, but socially conservative in a lot of ways is hard to one, wrap my head around when it gets super extreme. Two, it's like, where are these people? They got to be out there. Are yeah. they just like, because they, they vote? There's, it's, a, it's a large section of people. Yeah, but you, you know, statistically speaking though, I bet like 
that that sector of the population is becoming so small, statistically right. speaking. I just don't think as those people die out, basically. So you think it's there's an age line where socially concerned, or maybe like a religious line, a religious line, yeah, where where and then and, and religion, generally speaking, is becoming like less of a priority for Canadians, probably overall. Right. Do you think people in general are becoming more humanist? Uh, I'd say so. I mean, there's there's definitely. I mean, obviously, there's religious groups out there, uh, but I think generally speaking, the the world is becoming more. Or at least the Western world is like more agnostic than it's ever been. Do you think that we're mirroring the states? Like the states seem pretty divided, like down the middle. It seems almost 50-50 or maybe a little bit more liberal, like maybe like, I don't know, 55, 45, something like that. Do you think we mirror that? Or do you think that we're by and large a far more like um, socially liberal country? I think we're more socially liberal. I mean, definitely more socially liberal as a country. I'd like to think. I mean, maybe there's some smart person with statistics saying that I'm wrong. But I generally, I mean, the... The, the national psychology of Canadians is just different than Americans. It's, it feels like it's, it's, it's bred into us to be inclusive. It's, yeah, it's more, yeah, definitely. And actually, you know what? I, uh, on Canada Day, Trudeau, speaking of Trudeau, he posted a message like saying happy birthday, Canada, or whatever. And, and the message was so nice. He's like, our founding fathers came together, not in spite of our differences, but because of our differences. Mm-hmm. And of course, Canada has its blemishes. We can big time, yeah, talk about all those dark chapters of our history. But he really just kept on hammering home the the positive things we can point to about where the country came from and where it ought to be going. Um, and I think, and it was just really powerful. It was, it was I I, re, I don't repost much on my Facebook, but right. I was like, you know what? This got me. It totally, whoever wrote that thing for him or whether he came up with himself, I, it was really a, very effective. No, things like that that really move you are important. Like somebody wrote a defense of giving DeMar DeRozan that big contract and I decided to post that on my <laughs> you wall. You had to repost it. You know, because it was just smart writing and it got to the heart of the issue. Yeah, and, and, you know, and, and I welled up. The Raptors with, need a star. You, you know, know you, <laughs> what, who are you going to replace him with? Yeah. Hey, you know what? Let's get to the talk about the interview because I, I think that Laura Jane Grace is incredibly inspirational. Yeah, she's great. Uh, in the interview, it's funny. We uh, So we did this interview in Greg Stewart's new office. Shout out Greg Stewart, who Thanks, always Greg. doesn't hesitate to give us a little space to chat um, with our pod guests. And um, yeah, she came in. There was this news recently came out that she was dating um, Beatrice from... Cour de Pirate. It's very Cour de Pirate. Um, yeah, Pirate. I Pirate. I Pirate. Yeah. yeah, and you know, there was a lot to talk about. We were obviously reading a bunch of stuff leading up like she'd tore up her birth or burned her birth certificate in Durham, North Carolina. We talk about that. She has a new book coming out. Um, and for people who aren't familiar with Laura, just a little backstory just so, and it, I, you know, you should probably just give a two minute read on her Wikipedia page uh, before you listen to the interview. If you don't know anything about her, but she is a singer of against me. And in 2012, uh, she came out as a transgender person. And, um, you know, I was, just, it was interesting. I hadn't watched many of the interviews. And I remember this event happening in 2012, but didn't really pay too close attention It's pretty to big it. news when it was, it was Rolling news, Stone. But yeah. I didn't like read into it that much. And in her uh, Wikipedia page, it seems like she's just constantly in turbulence, whether, you know, interactions with the police and she's in this sort of punk rock existence where it's a, like kind of a very sort of... You mentioned punk- a Twitter feud with like Arcade Fire or something. Yeah, exactly. Just sort of a combative person. But then there's a bit of that like punk rock mentality from, totally, like, what, for sure. against me sort of represented and all those things. And, and I was thinking about, you know, how's this interview going to go? But then I started watching her do interviews and she was so well-spoken, kind of serene in nature, like acknowledging the difficulties in her life, uh, but always being incredibly honest. And then I was like, oh, this is actually gonna be a great interview. And she totally delivered and was incredibly thoughtful and, and very open and, and 
interesting and sensitive with everything she's talking about. You're releasing the book in November? November 14th. My book, Tranny, Confessions of Punk Rock's Most Infamous Anarchist Sellout. Yes. Is the title. How long did it take you to settle on that title? That's a pretty controversial title as well. Right. Well, we were, uh, Dan Ozzy, who worked on the book with me, like, we were just absolutely stunned when Hachette, the publishers, were like, yeah, let's do that. I mean, it's like almost a completely unmarketable title. <laughs> they were like, and they got behind it and were really excited about it. So um, it, that was kind of surprising, you know, but it did take a, a while to to come to that title as the title for it. Um, mm -hmm. Initially, I was with another publishing house, and th they didn't necessarily see the same vision for the book, and it was kind of like, I felt like being pushed more into like, like becoming Laura, or like, you know, oh, like sure. a really like a, a Hallmark type of vibe they wanted out of it, and I was <laughs> like, no, that's, that's not what we're doing here, um, but yeah. I on this pod, we like to get into the process of, you know, like how anyone creates, whether it's writing a song or writing a book. I mean, when you're writing, like, what is your process? So for my book, it's uh, based off of tour journals. Um, when I was eight years old, I lived in Italy at the time, and my dad had an assignment in Germany that was like two or three weeks long. So my teacher gave me the assignment of keeping a journal the whole time I was gone. So I did. And the trip was really like uh, an impressionable trip for me. Uh, I was second grader. I went to Dachau concentration camp and my brother got hit by a car on that trip. So two huge things where for, you know, an eight-year-old kid, you're just like, whoa. like Massive events. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really impressionable. And I wrote about those things. What'd your dad do? Uh, he was in the army. Oh, oh wow. Okay. So it was like a military training thing he yeah. had to go and do. Um, so I just kept journaling after that. And I've journaled the whole time I've been in a touring band. Um, so when I decided that I wanted to do a book, that was like, you know, I had to kind of basically like do a demo, you know, like write up what the book would be about and submit it to get a book deal. Um, and I, you know, was like, it'll be based on journals. This will be easy. I've got all these <laughs> journals. Um, but so like the average book nowadays is like, 75 80,000 words, you know, that you'd go and buy at Barnes and Noble, whatever. Sure. Um, so I fully transcribed all my journals and it was a million and a half words. God, it took me a year Lord to fully God. describe, all, like, fully transcribe everything, just sitting day after day you and do just it all typing. Yeah, as well? I, I transcribed every single journal. And in part of that, reasoning for doing that was so I could go and remember stuff, you know, like, right. and that was such a valuable tool, too, in that, like, I've talked to a couple of people at this point who've written books who've said, like, you know, like, without journals like going back and trying to remember is like near impossible for some stuff especially if you played in a punk band that's known for drinking and partying you sure know? um but so to have like you know to be able to be like 2003 august 23rd i was in this exact place i was on this flight the flight number was this i was sitting in this seat like you know so much detail yeah everything is was there so did you find anything in the journals that, like that maybe was a big moment that you'd forgotten and went holy shit i can't believe that happened. You know, it was more like light moments that had been forgotten of okay. like fun nights, you know, like one night in particular where we, we did a 50 state tour and we went to Anchorage, Alaska and, and played <laughs> and, and we went like to, we like went out to a bar and then some local was like, come to our house, we're partying. And we went to their house and like our friend John, who was with us, somehow got his shoes stolen at the party. <laughs> so like had to go home from the party without shoes. So it was just like light moments like that where you're like, oh yeah, I, I remember that time. That was really fun. I miss those those times, those people, you know? Yeah. I, it's funny. I always talk about it like um, I call it this thing called Boomer because my grandfather had this dog and he called him Boomer. Uh -huh. And the dog passed away. I forgot about the dog completely. And then my brother brought it up like a decade later. And I was like, if you didn't bring up that dog, 
like I never would have remembered it, but it lives somewhere in your brain, right. which is the weirdest thing to me. Like there's no recall. So it's like these moments that you sort of like boomer is what I call them, but it, they're living there somehow. But it's like, you would never recall them unless you somehow had like a trigger or something. Totally. Like yeah. Or like obsessive about writing. Them <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, I'm always interested whenever, you know, like, um, there's like a celebrity memoir or anybody sort of does a co-write. Um, so you said you wrote this with uh, Dan Ozzie. Yeah. How does that process look? Is that like, is it more of an editor or is it more of like a working on the prose? Like how does that relationship work? When Again, you- like the amount of editing that had to have been done with a million and a half words, like it was just too much for me where I was like, I, I cannot, I don't even know which stories in here are the ones that are worthwhile. So Dan uh-huh. really helped be like, this is, you know, like leave out that stuff keep in this stuff and then also like the, the biggest thing I struggled with was just the ending I'm not dead you know so it's not like like <laughs> the I'm, story continues, it continues yeah. on like so I was like how do I end this book I just don't know how to end this book and that was like when Dan came in that was what really helped solidify those things of like this is the shape of what this is how it should be shaped and this is how it should end you know and mm-hmm. and just having that that perspective to have someone else's input because you're just it's too personal for me and I'm too close to it to have any kind of real good perspective on it. Sure. Uh, When you do a book like that, were there any books that you read like to prepare or sort of that you aspired to do with your memoir, like a, like a, like a working sort of model? (laughs) Um, you know, there, there was a couple points of reference. Uh, Candy Darling's diary was one, uh, Steve Martin's born standing up was one. Okay, cool. There's a Jerry Lewis biography, Jerry Lewis biography. That was one, um, the Patty Smith books, uh, were other like examples, you know, are you a big comedy fan? You mentioned Steve Martin. Um, yeah, that, that was a little bit of Dan. Uh, you know, he was the one who was like, read this, this is good. Um, but it was, you know, it's, it was really just like seeing how other people framed their lives or yep. what they chose to focus on, you know, was, was good. But that book's excellent. Born Standing Up, I highly recommend it. Um, it's interesting because whenever you're writing a memoir or like, I think a song, and this is something that we ask a lot of people, it's like, you know, whether someone's the subject of a song or maybe they're showing up in, in, in one of your, you know, memories from your memoir, or one of your journals. Do you ever make a conscious decision where you're like, you know, I can't tell that story because that's going to hurt that person. Or maybe I can't sort of specifically make this song about somebody because either they're still in my life and I care or there's someone from my past and I don't really want to get into that shit. Do you make those conscious decisions or are you like all art is, you know, honesty? and? Well, you know... I thought it was really important to stay true to the feelings that were felt then, you know, because obviously, like, now looking back in perspective, I can be like, well, you know, like, I felt that way then, but this is really how I feel now, you know, but I wanted it to be how I felt then, you know, and be true to that. Um, That being said, like, I was really conscious of not trying to do like a hatchet job on anybody or try to throw anybody under the bus but myself. And really the book is about like accepting and taking responsibility for like the life you lived and the things that happened along the way. For me, like, you know, living closeted, living like a really compartmentalized existence, the coping mechanisms that I had to exist like that, you know, like created dark shit. There's a lot of like unhappiness and negative things that happened along the way because of those circumstances, you know, but this, it's really about me taking responsibility for it all. Were writing about those parts, you know, closeted existence, were those the most difficult parts to write about or did you find it liberating? What's the, what did you feel when writing about those things or putting them in this book? Um, kind of decimated, honestly. Like when finishing the book, like I, I, I just like felt like kind of intensely crushed. Like, wow. like taking a look back and being like, that's, that's the life I've lived, you know, like, and, and 
that moment, like, I'm thankful for having had that moment because then you're like, you know, as I said, I'm not dead. Like, I have the rest of my life to live now and I can change based on what I know has happened in the past and being able to reflect on that is like a really valuable tool. But it's funny now where like, going out and doing press for the book or starting to talk about it where people are like, I'm so excited for you. I can't wait to read it. Like, you know, I'm polite and I'm like, great, you know, back. But inside I'm thinking, oh my God, I am terrified of people reading this book. I'm never going to be able to have a normal social interaction <laughs> again in my life. <laughs> right. you know? like, yeah. And, and uh, I, you know, like the idea of my mom reading it or my daughter one day reading it, like is terrifying to me. I honestly like, go back and forth between extreme terror that I'm ruining my life by putting this book out and hoping that it serves to help somebody else who reads it. So that was going to be my question. What, what pushes you to put it out? Like, I mean, if, if, you know, it sounds like a pretty harrowing experience to go through something like this. So what is the ultimate pusher, you know? To, to reconcile, you know, and to, to take stock and, and really because like, to me, truth is ultimate truth is important and truth isn't always pretty you know but the truth is just that's what matters to me and that's like in art what i think is most important so um i just felt like you know you you had to like kind of detach yourself from it in a sense and 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 just like be willing to put it out there and not not hold back in order for it to know that it'll be good you know yeah but um I, I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I have a death wish too. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just do it to see what happens. Yeah. Maybe I just like chaos. I'm just not not very kind to my future self. Um, no, um, <laughs> uh, but you know, honestly, too, like with with that many words, you know, like that many journals, that many years of journals, like I just have boxes of Mead notebooks that I feel like are like not even metaphorically, like physically they weigh something, but metaphorically it's like a lot of weight to be carrying around with. So to go through them all, to read through it, just condense it into a book, I'm gonna burn the, I'm gonna burn the f journals now. And really? I don't have to carry these journals around anymore. I still keep journaling, you know, but like- Going forward from this point. Yeah, I just wanna like, clean slate, you know, like, and, and to, to be done with the past. I'm sick of thinking about the past now. Yeah. You burned your birth certificate. I did. In, Speaking uh, of fire. Yeah. <laughs> a smooth segue. Uh, in Durham, uh, North Carolina, uh -huh. um, because of the, the HB2 bill, obviously, and they're pretty archaic bathroom laws. Yeah. When you do something like that, is that something where, are you, is, are you consciously going, you know, I'm a leader, I'm taking a stand, or is it more just personal and this is what it means to me? Or, or are you conscious of the fact that you might be speaking for a lot of people or being a leader? Both, you know, um, obviously it's symbolism, burning your birth certificate. Sure. It was funny because afterwards, like, I saw a couple of people comment to me like, oh, you just screwed yourself over. Like, what are you going to do now? And I'm we'll like, really? Travel. Like, when was the last time you used your birth certificate? <laughs> like, I had to ask my mom for it. Yeah. I haven't used it in ever, I don't think. Maybe when I got a passport for the first time. It looked big, too. Yeah, it's just the size of a sheet of paper. In yeah, Canada, yeah. our birth certificates are, like, this small. So, anyway. Yeah, but I noticed that difference when I was uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, like I hadn't ever used it, you know, or anything like that. But um, obviously, it's symbolism. Um, you know, the, there were many artists that pro, that 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 boycotted North Carolina once HB two went into effect, um, and when like the show was booked before HB two went into effect. So like when that started happening, that was the boycotts were how I first became aware of HB two, and I was almost kind of like, you know, like. 
lackadaisical about it in a way where I was like, oh, well, I just assumed that's already how it was in North Carolina. <laughs> you know, I yeah. already operate under those that fear, you know. Um, but, like, I didn't think twice about the idea of canceling just because, you know, I, I, I think that, like, somebody like Bruce Springsteen or Ringo Starr or Brian Adams, like, boycotting, you know, those artists aren't trans. And that seems like the act of an ally as opposed to, like, you know, and and also they're way bigger so like there's real financial impact that comes from them boycotting as opposed to us if we would have canceled our show the only people who had been f-ed over would have been the promoter and the fans who had already bought the tickets absolutely so, you know it wouldn't have been like a, the governor wouldn't have called a special meeting to see what they were going to do for the economic <laughs> sure. loss by against me not coming to north carolina you know um but like it's it's not a reality for the people of North Carolina to boycott their own state, you know? And I don't live in North Carolina, but I work in North Carolina regularly. We've played shows in North Carolina at least once or twice a year for the past 20 years. Um, so going there, you know, like, it's, again, like, that's just the way I already thought it was, you know? And that's the way I already operated going there. But burning a birth certificate, you know, as symbolism is just like, f*** you, f*** this piece of paper. You know, part of my process for going through um, with transition stuff was like I had to undergo about six, seven months of intense psychotherapy to get a letter written by a therapist saying, I'm not crazy, I can have access to hormone replacement therapy. So, like, shouldn't that piece of paper mean something more than a birth certificate that was assigned to me when I was zero, when I was like minutes old and, and... you know, had no say in the matter or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a piece of paper. And the f-ed up thing too is that like, you know, part of what's messed up with that law is like, they're saying, you know, okay, in order to use the bathroom of your gender identity, you need to have the markers on your driver's license or whatever changed. In order to do that, you need to have your birth certificate changed. But you can't do that in most states. And it's different from state to state. So in order, for instance, in like, in in Georgia, where I was born, I would have to give proof of full SRS, sexual reassignment surgery, in order to change the gender marker on my birth certificate, or in order to change the gender mark in order to mark on my driver's license. Wow. So saying that you have to do something, and then at the same time making it impossible for someone to actually do that and follow through those proper steps that you're asking for, is where it really exposes it as just pure hate and discrimination. I feel like okay, like, I don't agree with it, but it would be more reasonable to say, like, if you're saying this is your gender identity, just update your, like, identification, and you're good, right? But if you're saying that, and then saying, like, secretly being like, but you can't actually do that, there's no way you can, then that's, that's, what else is it? What are you going to call it then? Yeah, it's almost like the system's completely rigged, and they know that, and they go, well, you only have to do one step. Yeah, and but then everything and you're never going to be able to no. do that step, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned Bruce and uh, Ringo and Brian and Pearl Jam boycotting right. the state. When a big act like that boycotts, what do you think? I mean, do you think that that has a, an effect, one, on the state where they go, oh, maybe we should change our ways? But more importantly, like, I guess, like, would it affect change on the state level? And also their fans that maybe are a little bit more ignorant. Do you think they'll take a moment to think or do you think people are going to be the way they're going to be? I definitely think it makes fans, especially on that big of a mainstream level, stop and think, you know, and, and bring something to possibly to their attention that they wouldn't have thought about before or have cared to think about. Um, I definitely think that there is an economic impact. I think that there's like kind of a double, double-edged sword to the economic impact in that like, you know, by boycotting the state, you know, there are queer-run businesses in North Carolina that are then affected by that boycott too. They'll you know that, that Yeah, yeah. So town. like if you're boycotting North Carolina, you're also in effect possibly damaging like those businesses that are the businesses you want to support, you know? Yeah. But um, 
I mean, I'm sure, like, Bruce Springsteen will go back to North Carolina after it's over. I'm sure those bands will go back there, you know, like, but I think the important thing is that it has us talking about it now. It started the conversation. It drew a lot of media attention to it. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting. We're big NBA fans, and the NBA All-Star Game is there next year, mm-hmm. and they're talking about pulling out. And I, I think that's a really interesting thing, because I think a lot of times sports fans don't necessarily think about these issues. Right. So the fact that that's something that's happening, I think, is a good thing for that sort of demographic and base. Totally. Yeah. And what was really incredible, too, is, you know, I just to, at the start of that tour, I was in Detroit, and I was flying from the Detroit airport uh, down there. And uh, it was when the attorney general uh, gave that speech talking about how the Obama administration, you know, has transgender people's back, like, and directly addressing it. And I'm standing there in the Detroit airport, and there was this huge, like, wall projection of it happening. And it wasn't audio, but there were subtitles. And seeing passengers stop and look at that and take it in and then carry on their way, it was, like, monumental. I started crying just because I never could have imagined, like, my government legitimizing my identity in that way of acknowledging it, you know, and, and, and saying that there, there's solidarity there. Um, and after watching that, I went over to the bar by, by my gate to wait for my flight to board. And there was no one really in the bar, but the, so there was a group of employees who were kind of huddled down at the end of the bar and I could overhear what they were talking about and they were talking about it and they were talking about trans people and they were saying some really ignorant shit. So I went over to them and I was like, actually, you're wrong for this reason, this reason, this reason. I'm transgender and blah, 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 blah. And I could just see like where they were like, whoa, like the TV and what's happening there just entered my reality. (laughs) Like they just didn't even know what to do. You know, it was like, I could tell it was like some of their first interactions with this, you know, and like that it was dawning on them that it was real. And unfortunately, the only response I got back after I, I said what I said was this one person was like, does Caitlyn Jenner regret transitioning and want to go back to being Bruce? And I was just like, oh, f- Christ, and oh turn around and laugh. <laughs> but, you know, maybe maybe it made some kind of impact. <laughs> yeah, in the moment, they probably, I like to think that, okay, that, that interaction will stay with them and maybe over time. For sure. It's just like, Ew. Well, just like you said, it's like it's something on the TV, which is easily it's easy to disassociate. Like, oh, that's there, right. and then to have you know human interaction, yeah, and it, it makes it all the more real, and you have to confront it. I think. Um, who are people in your life who you seek advice from? You know, whether it's like writing the book or maybe like the new album, which is coming out. Um, yeah, <laughs> who are the people I seek advice from? I seek advice from my publicist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> For those listening, she just winked. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, my band, you know, like that's that that's my my circle is my band. I when I have a something that is weighing on me, I, I talk to my band. You know, this album comes out in the fall, I believe. It comes out September fifteenth, uh, fourteenth. So the album is called Shapeshift with Me. Yeah. Shapeshift with Me. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So that's it. Won't is that an exclusive? Exclusive to us in person, but not. It'll. It, well, we're announcing that we're announcing the album title on the 18th, which is why the, oh, the, okay. why the hold on it. The embargo. Yeah, got yeah, you. Yeah, the embargo. No, that's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, how are you feeling about it? It's you know, I, I, honestly, like I've kind of, I kind of lost perspective on it. Where I was like, I don't even know if it's good or bad. <laughs> Just take it away from me. Um, <laughs> but no, it, it it's cool. Like I, honestly, like writing a book, finishing writing a book while finishing recording a record, like, I feel like aged me 20 years. Like, it's really, like, just a lot of work, you know, where, where that feeling of, like, again, like, I don't even know, like, I just accomplished it, I did it, it's done, like, and there's that feeling of elation of that, um, and I don't have the same fears necessarily with the record as I do with the book, but, uh, 
Yeah, it, it's it's pretty crazy. With the book coming out in November and the album coming out in September, you're probably gonna be touring a ton. Yeah, I, you're gonna do a book tour and all that. Yeah, I would do a book tour pretty much immediately around the book coming out. But we just start touring in September when the record comes out, pretty much immediately. Yeah. When you're like facing something like that, where it's like, oh, we're gonna be on the road and we do a bunch of these things, do you find that daunting or exciting? Because you've been touring a very long time. I find it like comforting like reassuring and that the like, road or the work the road yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. i mean all of it like being like even like you know coming here or whatever being like oh it's cool it's good to be back here you know like yeah. like i'm so thankful to be back here I'm so thankful to be talking about another project so thankful to like be staring down more touring more more years on the road you know and like being thankful for doing what you do especially as like you know you see friends who are in other bands and bands break up you know like things come and go moments pass and like to think about like especially going into 2017 like it, I've been doing against me since 1997 so 2017 is 20 years I've been doing against me like that's feels monumental to me yeah well you have the book you have the album and you mentioned obviously when you're talking that even though the book's coming out and, and it's a memoir there's still so much life to live. Right. Where do you see yourself in the future? <laughs> I, I thought at first what you were saying, like, <laughs> it's funny because I've done a couple of interviews with people where like, yeah, so you got the book and you've got the album. What else have you been up to? And it's <laughs> like, Jesus Christ, what <laughs> the no, f- do you want from me? Like, I wrote a book, I did an album, like, produced albums for other bands. So I'm, like, <laughs> I'm busy. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like. Do you think about the future? I do, yeah, constantly, you know. I, and with that, you know, like, I have been working with other bands doing production work. I did, uh, I was a part of making this record that's coming out uh, in a couple weeks for this band Faya that's coming out oh. on Blackheart Records. I produced a couple songs on their record. I did a record with a band called Warriors rec- last year. It was on Don Giovanni Records. Um, but I just I, I want to continue doing this. Like I love doing what I do. Like so when I think about the future, I just think about like continuing to push myself to feel like I'm evolving at what I do and to change and but but just that desire of like maintaining it and like. I don't know. I like the saying, like, you're only as good as the last song you wrote. You're only as good as the last show you played, you know? So, mm. like, you just, like, that drive is still there with me very much. Thanks cool. so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Do you have anything you want to add? So this was in Huffington Post, because uh, yeah, that you came out as, uh, as a couple. Yeah. It was, it was, was that a disgust between the two of you? No, that was kind of surreal. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. She didn't tell you that she was going to make that Instagram? Oh no, the Instagram, sure, but like the fact that Huffington Post oh, was going to cover it. Yeah, yeah. No, like none of us knew that yeah. Huffington Post was going to cover the fact that we're dating. Yeah. What was the thought when it, they picked it up? Are you like, what? Shit, I didn't think that was going to happen. Yeah. No, it was. I mean, it's like just kind of surreal. It's like, whoa, my dating life is yeah, on a newsworthy. This is crazy. How did you meet each other? Um, she invited me to a show. Oh wow, that's yeah. nice. Mm-hmm. Had you been familiar with her work before? I knew of her. Yeah. Uh huh. Was it exciting times? Yeah. How was the show? What's that? How was the show? Which show? The the one she invited you to. Um, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. Were you like, I'm into this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's kind of irresistible. I don't know what to say. About that. <laughs> the after show was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> that Groucho Marx. <laughs> Who are you? Who are you? Are you sure you have any oil in there? <laughs> Definitely getting you stoned. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to everybody's favorite part of the podcast, the dessert. Uh, Actually, Max is not with us today. It's just me and Shane, my good friend Shane. Shane Christian Cunningham, what's going on? Oh, not much. Um, 
I should say we're doing the weird setup again. So yes. We've done this once before where Shane and I are in the smallest booth ever at 299 Queen Street West. We're facing each other. We're about a half foot away, staring into each other's <laughs> eyes. <laughs> and this, this way to me is the weirdest way to do it. Uh, I'm not sure if it sounds weird, but it feels very weird to to record this way. Yeah. So for listeners, if our energy is weird, it's because we're in a confined space. And uh, yeah, Max isn't here either because what's he doing? He's He's on the road playing festivals. It's the summer. You know, he's got that side gig in a band. Which kind of screws me up because I wanted to, uh, because I was like all my, I write in a little uh, moleskin ideas to talk about on the podcast. And a lot of them were about uh, Drake's dad, music video. Which you directed, and they'll be coming out with very soon. Yeah, it was a huge. Uh, There's lots of interesting happenings uh, surrounding the video, and in fact, something very exciting happened recently that's going to make the video way better. That's just a tease for the next pod, because Max and I can actually uh, talk about how weird and uh, strange the whole video process was. But something very cool happened that we'll talk about next time. So, uh, but as for me right now to talk about... (laughs) That was an awesome uh, (laughs) tease, though. So for our listeners, they're going to be really excited for the next episode when the three of us are together and you you can tell this story. Yeah, so they'll skip this dessert because this is going to be... Turn off the pod right now. This is all going to be shit. But yeah, I guess the big thing going on right now is I've seen a couple of movies for for once in my life, for twice in my life. And uh, you've probably noticed me eating a lot of bags of jerky. Also, I have noticed for those that uh, for our listeners, Shane sits uh, about two desks away from me, like in in front. We we sit across from each other, like about I don't know ten feet, mm-hmm. and so uh, we can see each other's goings ons. Is that how you say that? That that's exactly how you say it. That going on, uh, <laughs> goings on. <laughs> um, and Shane's been eating uh, beef jerky uh, almost exclusively. It seems like to me. But what you probably haven't noticed is me losing any weight because <laughs> I'm on a very special diet. Uh, the wedding is almost under a month. It's, I guess it's 35 days away. August 20th. Yes. So Send your gifts in the mail, listeners. Uh, Shane's wedding, that is, August 20th. So I'm try- I tried to kick it into high gear by doing something that uh, a lot of people don't recommend, which is fasting. So for two days a week, I fast. Yeah. Mondays and Thursdays. You seem crankier on those days. Yeah, I am definitely crankier. I have no energy. I try to sneak out and go home early, like (laughs) 2.30 p.m. (laughs) Sleep off all the time that I can't eat any good food. It's honestly a good tactic. And the reason I did this is we used to have a a designer who worked here. Mm -hmm. His name is Jordan Clark. Yeah. And people always asked if he was my brother while he was working here. We had similar style. We kind of looked alike. Yeah. Anyway... I notice on his Facebook, all of a sudden, he's lost like 30 pounds, which is pretty much the exact amount of weight I'd like to lose. That's a lot of pounds. It is. 20 is probably more realistic. <laughs> 10 is probably more realistic. <laughs> if I lose five pounds, I'm going to be very happy. That's a big Mike. win. Anyway, I messaged Jordan Clark, and I said, like, what's the secret? Like, he looks phenomenal now. He's like a hunk. And before, it was a hunk of shit. No, I'm kidding. He looked fine before. <laughs> but he just looks so much better. And he gave me this audio book. Okay. Which I also passed along to you as was it Shaq's autobiography? It was as I, read by Shaq. Yeah, because I quite here's how that. I lost weight in my early years. <laughs> Played a lot of basketball, <laughs> but so I tried this diet, and what I'm finding is I am definitely not eating a lot on the two fast days. I'm not cheating, but what I am doing is eating double the amount of food on the next day. But I'm still losing a pound a week. Hey, which you know. For three weeks in, I've lost three pounds, which is why uh, 
you can't notice me losing any weight. Right. What I'm doing on the last month is I'm going to work out like a madman every day and restrict my calories to 2,000 calories per day on days I'm not fasting, which for a man is a good amount of calories. And the days I'm fasting, I'm only consuming between 500 and 600 calories. So if I look good on my wedding, I suggest you try the same in the last month before yours. Unless, who gives a shit? You've got a good face anyway. (laughs) (laughs) This is for guys who need a good body to look good. If you've got a good face, it's like Leonardo DiCaprio. It doesn't really matter. (laughs) But I really need that uh, body to look good. Does Leo fluctuate? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, he fluctuates. And when I was on vacation, actually, um, in Cuba, my sister, like, she was trying to be complimentary. You know, she's kind of weird, though. And um, I'm shirtless in Cuba. And she goes, you have the same body as Leonardo DiCaprio, (laughs) which is not a compliment. If someone said I had the same face as him or something. But the body's his worst thing. Right. But he has such a good face. It transcends being in shape. He looked good in Wolf of Wall Street with his shirt off. He did, yes. But you could still tell the seams were about to come off. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, he's in phenomenal shape. It was, he's in great shape for Leo. Okay. Speaking of movies, Mike. Yeah. I've seen Saw. I I watched two films. (laughs) Two? Yes. Okay. Uh, Neon Demon. Oh, you went and saw it. Which is... Elle Fanning. Nicholas Winding Refn. When I say that name, what comes to mind? Drive. You're you're a pop culture aficionado. That's good. Yeah, but I want you on the pod, so we let you have the title. Yeah, I know nothing. (laughs) Anyway, uh, yeah, I saw, I I fell in love with this guy when he directed Bronson. Okay. Uh, Our buddy Sean Dawson had this had this movie chilling around, and I thought it was going to be some shitty little fighting movie. It turned out to be unbelievable. Then he came out with Drive. He's at the peak of his powers. I'm so excited for Only God Forgives. Turned out to be like an art house kind of big time, like total like uh, what do they call that when it's like self indulgent, self indulgent. What do they call it? Like a uh, it was some piece that's very like narcissistic. It was like uh, oh, a vanity project, a vanity project. That's that's the term. <laughs> Mike's good with words, and uh, and this one's no different, right? Neon Demon. So it's beautiful to watch. It's very. Uh, it, he kind of reminds me of Kanye West. Oh, in the fact that. Once he reached the height of his powers, he knows he proved to everyone that he could be great if he wanted to be. So now he's kind of fucking with people for moments of brilliance. Yeah. Because there's some scenes in Neon Demon that are so good that you're like, this movie is going to be awesome. There's a scene in particular where you're watching it. You're like, tell people what it's about. Neon Demon. It's about Al Fanning, who plays a, uh, a young model. Mike, who's, who's telling Sorry, the story? Sorry, my bad, pop culture. <laughs> I'll do the talking around here. Who plays a young model. Yeah. And uh, she comes to Hollywood, and she has a look that's very natural, whereas in in Hollywood, all the models have nose jobs, boob jobs, and a variety of surgeries. And when they get when they get to a certain age, they feel washed up and threatened by all the, the young, fresh exactly. talent showing up every day on a bus. And this girl's the epitome of beauty. Yeah. To me, I don't see it, though. So it kind of takes me out of it because I don't find her to be super hot. Right. And anyway, the whole movie is about photographers trying to uh, take her photo, people trying to f*** her, people trying to kill her. Get out. People it try- gets that wacky. I'll even do a little. This isn't a huge spoiler, but people trying to eat her. <laughs> and I don't mean like eat her box. I mean like literally <laughs> like eat her like body. 
<laughs> this is being sound engineered right now by <laughs> Matt, who mixes all of our episodes. And I just, I know he went. He's like, that's going to get cut. <laughs> it isn't. That box, we can't say box anymore. Okay. People eat boxes. It happens. We got to fight for free speech on this pod. And that's why I'm We're here. recording this in a box right now. <laughs> we are. Um, so, and then there's some crazy ass scenes. You can cut this part. You may keep it, but I doubt a lot of people are going to see this movie anyway because it's not doing very well at the box office. Uh, yeah. No <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she, there is a scene where one of the characters f***s a dead person. Oh, my goodness. And it's a girl, lesbian um, necrophilia. That's rarely seen so, in film. So he's going full Kanye. He's testing people's um, limits. Just trying to f*** with people. But there's no cohesion. It doesn't add up to anything mm-hmm. with the story. It's just like random scenes that are meant to maybe outrage or make you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, and then it, it's funny because after it's one of those things too. It's almost like a Radiohead song where certain people are going to like it afterwards, and certain people are going to say they like it afterwards just to be cool. Yeah, but you don't know if they're bullshitting or not. This is the type of movie that's going to play at like some Toronto taco bar with the sound off. Right? <laughs> Would you recommend it at a taco bar with, with the sound, sound off? <laughs> Honestly, though, it looks amazing. Sure. This, this film yeah. is. Awesome. And maybe in a couple of years, I'll like it. Right now, it's a little bit too boring, but some of the shots are awesome. And this guy clearly can do an amazing movie if he wants to. That's it. That's all. That's our episode. Thank you so, so much for listening. Um, you can follow us at Mike on Much on Instagram and Twitter. Jenna Gregory at jennasdoodles.com provides all the artwork for the show. Huge shout out to Dan Carruthers, as always, for handling a bunch of the social media stuff. What, what? Tara Paquette for putting together all the artwork. Uh, Mike McShane, who's just <laughs> been an awesome dude around the company helping the show along. I don't know. We got a lot of, a lot of hands yeah, we thank, here. Yeah, we thank a lot of people. Yeah. The Mike Much Podcast is produced by Max Kerman. I am your host, Mike Veerman. See you next week if we don't die on the weekend. <laughs>